Good morning, church. My name is Rodney Brooking. I'm a member of the security ministry here at Lighthouse. We're reading from 1 Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Rodney. Let's pray. Lord, we open up our hearts to the working of the Holy Spirit, the the teaching of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, your word uh, is spirit in life, it says, and it's able to do uh, in us uh, things that no uh, no other book can do, certainly. And we pray that you would help us to understand the reality of the the kingdom, especially, and the king over the kingdom. So speak to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are back in Colossians this morning. We took a short one-week break last week to kind of give you a little report of the prayer getaway. Um, Well, we've established now that the central theme of Colossians is the supremacy of Jesus over all things, things visible and things invisible. Jesus is the creator of all things visible and invisible, and uh, he rules over all things. And so our two little verses that Rodney read for us this morning, they are packed with a, a massive truth about the kingdom. And, and though Jesus is sovereign over the earth, the world is enveloped currently by a system that is opposed to Jesus. So there's a a system that wraps around the planet uh, from sea to shining sea, and this system is in opposition to Jesus. There's a spirit that that rules. Uh, the, The personal name is Satan, but then there's a spirit that is sent out called Antichrist spirit, which means instead of Christ. Now, I I need to show you that because especially in this weird day and age where we live currently, it may feel like, is God really in control? Is Jesus really in control of planet Earth and the governments and the nations and the rulers and the elite billionaires at Davos and all of them? Is he in control? Well, let me just flesh it out with you for, for just a minute. Uh, for instance, Psalm 22, 8, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. So right now, he's ruling over Ukraine. He's ruling over Iran. He's ruling over North Korea. He's ruling over the United States of America. He's ruling over the nations, all nations. The ruler of the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, God made Nebuchadnezzar at a certain point in his reign, uh, made him think that he was a cow. 
And you can find this in, Dan, in the book of Daniel. But uh, I don't imagine that was a hard thing for God to do. You know, uh, the Lord knows all the little nuts and bolts and screws that, that he puts in our brains to hold us together or whatever. So he took a little twist uh, uh, of, you know, of, of a screw, and that would just uh, make Nebuchadnezzar into thinking he was a cow. And for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the Babylonian Empire, the greatest empire at that time in the world... For seven years, he was out in the fields eating grass and mooing like a cow. After the seven years, he came back into his right mind, and he made, at the end of that seven years, one of the clearest declarations of God's sovereignty. Really, I think that exists. And this is found in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. Again, this is a pagan ruler and who says this, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, meaning the end of my days as a cow, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So Nebuchadnezzar, most powerful man on planet earth, ruler of the Babylonian empire, says the Lord does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, no one can stop him. He rules among the governments and the peoples. The kingdoms and the nations and the governments are like chaff. They're like dust in the wind. Kansas would say, uh, the Lord's dominion is everlasting. His kingdom is eternal. And yet, the Bible teaches that the world is currently enveloped by a system that is utterly opposed to his rule. For instance, 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So John is telling us that the whole world, all people, are enveloped by a system. It's an invisible system. It's a domain where Satan has certain delegated, delegated powers to rule and reign. And in Colossians 1.13, our passage, Paul calls it a domain of darkness. So this system that envelops the earth that's opposed to Jesus' rule and reign, Paul calls it a domain of darkness. You remember Jesus called Satan the prince of this world in John chapter 12, verse 31. The, the principality of the world, a ruler, he was saying. According to Ephesians 6, Satan has a, an organization of evil spirits, demons, we would say, working with him, influencing the the events and affairs of this world. And so Paul says to the Colossians, who were kind of being infiltrated by worldly philosophy and thinking and, and kind of 
not understanding the supremacy of Jesus over all things, he says to them that your Christian life began with a transfer. It began with a transfer from the kingdom or the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus. That's verse 13. It says, he, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of Jesus. So the word domain um, is from the Greek word exousia. It means the, the power of rule or government. So, so it's the power of those whose will and commands we uh, are under. We sub have to submit to and obey. So it's, it's, it's government, essentially. So, so when you got saved, if you have been saved, you were transferred out of Satan's domain and then transferred into Jesus' domain, his kingdom. And... And, and so you, went, you were transferred out of the domain of darkness, the, the system that envelops the world currently, enslaves people all over the planet, and you were transferred from that system into the kingdom of Jesus. Now this is all over the New Testament. Let me give you one example. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So what that's saying is that before you came to Jesus for salvation, you drifted along like a dead fish in the system. And you didn't, you didn't fight the system, you rolled with it, and you unwittingly were obeying the ruler of the system, Satan. That's what Paul is saying. I know that might be a tough pill to swallow, but that's just the spiritual reality. It's true of all of us before we came to Christ. The first 18 years of my life were lived in the same house at 215 Douglas Avenue in Moose Lake in the domain of Minnesota. Upon graduating high school, I transferred out from under the domain of Minnesota and its laws and regulations and taxes to the domain of California, where I lived for 14 years. And I'm grateful for those years, primarily because it's there I met my wife and my savior, California. It's good things in California believe it or not. <laughs> However, when I lived under the domain of California, I had to obey its laws and follow its regulations and pay its taxes. And, and you had to get a permit to sneeze in California. And then we transferred out from under the domain of California to the domain of Idaho and discovered that you can jump off the Prine Bridge without a note from your parents. It's amazing the freedom. We love it here. We don't want to live anywhere else. But transferring from state to state 
was physical and geographical and visible. You can see that. Yeah, you lived in Minnesota, you lived in California. I can see that you're now here in Idaho. That, that's obvious. But when Paul is speaking of transferring from one domain, from under one government to another, what, what is he talking about? What does it mean to be transferred from the domain of darkness uh, into the, the kingdom of Jesus? So I'm going to give you three things uh, this morning, and we're going to go pretty fast on this. So num- number one, the kingdom of Jesus is a reign it's not a physical realm. The kingdom of Jesus is currently a reign, but it's not a physical realm. Again, verse 13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So if you're a Christian here this morning, that transfer has happened. It's a, it's a past completed action. So, so you have been transferred from one domain to the other. You're transferred from the domain of darkness. You're now in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus. So what is the kingdom of Jesus or the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven? It's all synonymous in the Bible. What is it like? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus is not a physical realm yet, but rather it is a reign. The kingdom of God is not a country, it's not a society, it's not the church, as some people have mistakenly taught in previous times. Although the kingdom, it exists in the people who make up the church. So the kingdom of God, it exists within people who used to live under the domain of darkness but who put their faith in King Jesus and are now living under his authority. So the kingdom of God is in people who have yielded their lives to Christ. Now, this was confusing to first century expectant Jews who were expecting the Messiah. This was very confusing. They were looking for the Messiah to come and establish his physical kingdom on physical earth. Visible, obvious. They were looking for the kingdom to be expressed physically as Messiah would overthrow the Roman Empire and elevate them to become the rulers with him on earth. And they had lots of Old Testament scripture to back up their belief. Plenty of it. Let me give you a classic Isaiah 61, the, the, the Jew, uh, expectant Jew of the first century and previous were thinking there's, there's going to be the Messiah is going to come and he's going to elevate us to be the rulers over the earth with him. Here's what it says, Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are abound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all those who mourn, 
to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins and shall raise up the former devastation. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. So this messianic prophecy says that when Messiah comes, he's going to bind up broken hearts and liberate captives and execute vengeance on the oppressors. The ancient cities that lay in ruins will be repaired and rebuilt and Israel will rule and reign once again like the days of David. Well, Jesus famously, I think this is Luke 4, shows up for synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and he's the invited rabbi to who's going to, you know, give the little sermon. So they give him the Isaiah scroll. And Isaiah, they didn't have chapters and verses, you know. I would imagine it would take a minute to find the passage <laughs> that we know to be Isaiah 61. You know, you keep rolling, rolling, rolling. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Finally, he gets to where he wants, and he begins reading at what we have as Isaiah 61.1. So here's Jesus in the synagogue in his hometown, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stopped. Right in the middle of verse 2. He didn't read the next phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God. He then said, after rolling the scroll back up, today, this scripture, the scripture I just read to you, is fulfilled in your hearing. He was obviously claiming to be the prophesied Messiah. They would attempt to kill him. For what he said. But he was also hinting that there would be a dual fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. He was saying, he was intimating to them by stopping at, at the year of the Lord's favor and not reading the day of vengeance, that there's a gap between the year of the Lord's favor and the day of his vengeance, that there would be two advents of the coming of the Lord. The first advent would be to announce God's favor. God is favoring you. God has done it all for you. It's good news that's being brought through the first advent of Jesus Christ. The second advent, the return of Jesus, would be to bring about the day of vengeance of our God. People thought, there would be one appearance of Messiah. 
The spiritual and the physical manifestations of the kingdom would come with him. It would all be in, in one coming, one package. Jesus alluded to this many, many times. I, I grabbed a couple of examples in Luke 17, 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. You're not going to see the kingdom with your physical eyes. On another occasion, Luke 19, 11, says Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So this was in the mind of every expectant first century Jew that the kingdom of God is going to appear. We're going to see it. Rome's going to be overthrown. Messiah is going to rule. We're going to rule with him. It's going to be obvious and physical and visible. So when this expectation that was pervasive in the hearts of religious Jews didn't happen, It brought confusion. It even confused John the Baptist. Now that's, that's fascinating because John the Baptist, as many of you know, that was Jesus' cousin, right? And John the Baptist was the first one uh, to, to make a public uh, declaration, not only of Jesus' you know, being the Messiah, but of his sacrifice for us. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? I mean, amazing. So John was that, that radical, camel hair wearing, locust, you know, organic eating, Harley riding voice in the wilderness. And John was in prison because he confronted Herod, Herod Antipas because Herod, you know, he seduced his brother's wife and, you know, a bunch of unseemly, drama that was happening and John called him on it. He said, dude, that's not okay. And he was thrown in prison. And when John the Baptist was in prison, he was confused and he was doubting if Jesus was the Messiah. Because when Messiah comes, he's going to bring the day of vengeance upon the enemies of God. So, so, what am I doing in prison for speaking the truth? So Matthew eleven two, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, "Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another?" I, I don't get it. I don't. I don't understand. I, I mean, I thought you were the one. I proclaimed that you were the one. I, I had my whole ministry built around that you were the guy. So John's problem, the problem of every devout Jew who is looking for the Messiah, how could Jesus be the Messiah when sin and sinful institutions flourished and the Jews remained an oppressed people? How can, that, how can he be the one? 
Here's what Jesus said in response to John. Matthew eleven four. Jesus said to him, go and tell John. He's talking to the messenger. Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So Jesus said to those messengers, tell John, Yes, the kingdom of God is here, but there's a, there's a new revelation about the kingdom. In, instead of overthrowing external governments and political orders, it's being established in the hearts of men and women. Instead of overthrowing human governments and forcing itself upon humanity, it's disarming Satan and inviting people to embrace the true king. Yes, I am the true king. And so it's coming in a different way than you expected. The kingdom is yet to come physically, and it will. That's the second coming story of the Bible, the day of God's vengeance. But it indeed, it has come, and it is manifest in the lives of all humans who have embraced the rule and reign of Jesus. It's why we call him Lord because we've entered his kingdom. In fact, that's the, that's the entrance ticket. Confess him as Lord and you will be saved. Submit to his authority and you are transferred out of the domain of darkness and into his eternal kingdom. The kingdom is here now. It's not destroying human rule in earthly governments. It's not abolishing sin and wickedness. It's come quietly. It's come discreetly. And the blessing of God's rule and reign is a gift that is offered to humans all over the planet. It's a gift of grace. Well, the second observation here about the kingdom of God is that it's eternal. It's eternal. So in Matthew 12, just following the scene with John the Baptist being confused, in Matthew 12, a demon-oppressed man was brought to Jesus. He couldn't see. He couldn't speak. Jesus healed the guy, and the people who saw it, uh, they said, could this be pointing to Jesus, could this be the son of David? That's an interesting phrase. Could this be the son of David? What did they mean by the son of David? Well, perhaps you recall the story from 2 Samuel 7. David was in his beautiful palace one day there in Jerusalem. There were no wars being waged, no battles being fought at this time. So David had some extra time to ponder and dream and consider his life and, and situation. So he's looking around at his beautiful palace, realizing how blessed God has made him. He then looked up to the temple uh, area there, the future temple area, and there was a tent known as the tabernacle. Before there was a temple, it was a tabernacle. Tabernacle essentially is a tent. So David's in his palace, living large, beautiful palace, and he's looking over at God's house, 
which is a tent. Now, I say God's house. You know, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, right? But at, at a certain point, uh, the children of Israel commanded to, to make the tabernacle and that God would uniquely localize his presence within that tabernacle, within the inner room known as the Holy of Holies. That's where I'll show up. I'll meet with you there. So it was seen as this is, that's God's house. So David in his palace, looking at where God's living in the tent and going, that ain't right, okay? Like, we need to build God like a serious palace, like one that'll make mine, you know, look like the, uh, a dump, okay? Why? And, and David got just excited about this idea. He talks to Nathan, the prophet, about it, and Nathan goes, man, that's a great idea. Do everything that's in your heart. And then later that night, God spoke to Nathan <laughs> and said, dude, you spoke out of turn. And God gave Nathan a message for David. Nathan said to David, thus says the Lord, David, you want to build me a house? I haven't lived in a house since the day my, I set my people free from Egypt. I've lived in a tent all this time and, and haven't asked you or anyone for a house. And David, I, I took you out of the pasture and, and tending your sheep so that you could be a prince over my people. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off your enemies from before you. Here's the deal, David. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. Now, your son, I'm going to go ahead and allow your son Solomon to build me a temple, you know. But the, the greater story here, David, is that I'm going to build you a house. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, that, that's quite a promise from God. David's house and kingdom and throne would go on forever without end. This is known as the Davidic covenant. Now, when God says, your house will go on forever, he's not talking about David's palace. Uh, though they've ex excavated much of David's palace, and it's still in pretty good shape after 3,000 years, that's not what God's talking about. He's talking about David's lineage, his dynasty. Saul was a, a one-off king, uh, the, the people's choice. His family would be cut off from ruling immediately after his death. There would be no more line of Saul uh, in the king, kingly line. So David was the true king whose lineage would bring forth the forever king who will sit on a forever throne and rule over a forever kingdom. God says to David, your son will build me a house, but I'm building you a house, a throne and a kingdom that will stretch out into eternity through your lineage. You will have a son that will occupy your throne forever. It was the beginning of Passion Week the week that would end with Jesus being crucified on a cross. It, it began on a much different note. Uh, Jesus was uh, outside of Jerusalem and he was riding in on the back of a donkey and people had lined the path 
and they were throwing down their coats onto the path and, and palm branches. They were getting palm branches and throwing them on the path. And they were all chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is, uh, is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Son of David, they cried. Son of David. They were calling Jesus the son of David because he was the son of David. The Gospel of Matthew begins with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. It was commonly understood that the Messiah would come from David's line. The Messiah would be his offspring. Jesus Christ, the forever king, would come from David. Isaiah 11.1, 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesse was David's dad. Now you know who David's mom was, right? Jesse's girl. That's a pretty good one, actually. So, <laughs> a thousand years after King David ruled and reigned from Jerusalem, and, and Israel really was at its peak under David and the initial part of Solomon's reign, David's family tree, rather than flourishing and being big and healthy, it would be reduced to a stump over those thousand years. You know, if you, if you know the stories of the kings, you know, Solomon was the second king after David, and then there was a split between north and south, and, and corrupt kings, and, and uh, you know, Babylonian conquest, Assyrian conquest, and a thousand years later, there's a stump left over in, in the line of David, just a stump. But out of that stump, there would come a little shoot. Just a little tiny shoot of life. Born in Bethlehem like David was. But this shoot would grow up in obscurity in northern Galilee and, and the people expected a Messiah would come and overthrow Rome and all of that stuff as we said. But at the age of 30, this little shoot from David's line would begin to teach like no one has ever taught. He would begin to do miracles that no one had ever seen. He would eventually be crucified for his claims of being not only the offspring of David, but the root of David. He claimed to be God. The son of God and the son of man. The grave couldn't hold him. He rose on the third day. He ascended into heaven. And, and, and after appearing to people and meeting with people for over 40 days uh, after his resurrection, he would ascend into heaven. Jesus, the son of David, will return to this earth, I believe very soon. And the reign that is established in the hearts of people right now, many of you, his reign has been established in you 
You don't submit perfectly and obey completely, but he is your Lord. And he is the one you bow to and you worship and you adore and you love. And so for all of us who has discovered his rule and reign in us now, when he comes back, his rule and reign will be made physical and visible on planet earth, even as it is in your heart now. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, forevermore, no end to this rule and reign, the rule and reign of Jesus, no end to his throne, to his rule, to his reign, to his kingdom. You've been transferred out of the domain of darkness, which is perishing. And the domain of darkness, it's all about chasing stuff that doesn't last. And you've been transferred into a kingdom. That lasts forever. This gives me just enough time for one more observation. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus is unshakable. This is important. Living in a shaky world, the kingdom that we are now in is unshakable. I'll read it to you in Hebrews 12, 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken re remain. Therefore, let's be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. This past week, our, our garbage disposal's been jammed up. Um, so, you know, you hit the button, and just, it, it doesn't do the, it's stuck, right? You've been there probably a time or two. So, I'm not the most um, handy guy <laughs> when it comes to plumbing. And, and so, uh, I, I texted my brother-in-law, said, hey, Mark and Mark's super talented and gifted in that way. And said, hey, can, uh, you know, can you come help us? I'd actually, I think Pam texted him. And uh, so he's coming over. And I think, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a try. So I get under there and unscrew the thing that holds the thing. And then I undo the thing that holds the other thing. And, and then I <laughs> take the thing, my jigger, and I pull the thingy off. And, 
And I take the garbage disposal now, detached from everything, and I turn it over upside down in the sink, and I begin to shake it. I shake it, shake it. I'm hearing some stuff rattling around in there. And I have a little Allen wrench that turns. There's a little thing where you can turn, you know, make the thing rotate. So I turn it, and I say, oh, there's still something stuck. And I shake it some more, shake it some more. And the little pieces of glass are getting shaken loose. And pretty soon I put the Allen wrench and turn the thing, and now it's rotating freely. And I put it back in. Listen, the world is being shaken. It's not a sign that God is not in control. It's a sign that he is in control. This is the plan. He is shaking things, things that we can see, things that we can't see, so that everything that is shakable will be exposed for what it is and that only what is unshakable will remain. Therefore, you are part of an unshakable kingdom and our response to living in a shaky world is to worship God with joy and reverence to live faithful lives for Christ, knowing that the unshakable kingdom is it's established in our hearts right now, but it's going to be established physically when Jesus Christ sits upon the throne of David eternally. Let's pray. Amen. Lord Jesus, Son of David, Son of God, Son of Man, Lord, you have established your rule and reign in us. You have transferred us out of the kingdom, the domain of darkness, and into your kingdom. We praise you for that, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray for us that we would not be moved or shaken by the shakiness that we see in the world around us that we would be planted, rooted, grounded, immovable, unshakable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor for you is not in vain. It matters. It's noticed. It's taken note of. It will receive reward eternally. So as we will be exhorted later in Colossians, we're to seek those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We're to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are earth, that are shakable and temporary, dust in the wind. So Lord, I, I pray that for every born again child of God in this place this morning, and maybe we need to take inventory as we come to the table,
and think, man, I've been so like consumed with, with this pursuit or that thing that, that ultimately it's not, it doesn't matter. I'm being consumed with things that are seen rather than intentionally investing myself in the things that are unseen. Uh, I'm trafficking in the shakable stuff and not leaning into the unshakable. So Lord, as we come to the table, Lord, I pray that we would have humble hearts of repentance and that you might adjust our lives, Lord, correcting us and that we would fix our eyes on the prize, Lord, and press towards the mark of the upward call of God in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You're invited to make your way to the communion table. There's numerous of them around the auditorium. If you have not as of yet received Christ as your Savior and Lord, this is, this is the story. It's the, it's the mega story that's over all of life. Jesus Christ, he died for you. He really did. And by yielding to his lordship, that means turning over your life to him, giving him authority over your life. That's what it means to call him Lord. The Bible says you'll be saved, you'll be transferred out of the kingdom of the domain of darkness into his kingdom of light. Do you realize that you've sinned against God? Do you realize that apart from Jesus, there is no other way? There's only one way out of the domain of darkness. Neither is there salvation in any other. There's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved the name of Jesus. So if you are ready to trust in Christ and make him your Lord, I want you to pray this prayer after me. Say this prayer. Lord Jesus, I believe in you that you are the Son of God and the Son of Man who died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. And I ask you now to be my Lord and my Savior. I give you my life. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. So as we gather here today, as we do every Sunday, we follow the pattern set by Jesus that was, that was passed on as this corporate meal that, um, as he told um, his disciples, that as, as often as we do this, we do this in remembrance, and, and we do it um, remembering what he did for us on the cross, that, that other transfer that took place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin 
to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so it was on that night before he would be led to the cross that Jesus gathered his disciples and he took the bread. And, and like we'll do today, we'll, we'll, we'll bless it and we'll partake it to, to remember him and, um, until he comes again. And so, Father, we do thank you for your plan, Lord, that, that, that rescued us from our sin, that transferred us from the domain of darkness into the domain of light, to the, to the kingdom that you've prepared. And so, as we partake this, Lord, we, we, we thank you for the blessing of that, and we bless this to our body. In Jesus' name, let's partake. And scripture records that likewise he took he took the cup and explained that it was a this is the cup of blood and it was represents the new covenant and that he would not take of this cup until he returned again and so we we as we take this we we await his return and so we'll we'll do the same we'll we'll bless it father god Thank you for Jesus' blood that was poured out for, for us, that covered our sin, that transferred his righteousness and took our sin. And so as we partake, we bless you, Jesus. Amen.